I have been so honored and privileged to have known Pastor Don Livesey not only as a leader for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but also as a colleague in ministry and as a friend. I want to extend our heartfelt gratitude tonight on behalf of the Carolina Conference to Elder Don Livesey and his wife Barbara for sharing this week with us and for being the first part of our camp meeting speaker in the evenings. I think that we owe him a special gratitude. And let, can we express that by just you know, putting our hands together and just saying thank you, thank you. Barbara, stand up. I'm going to make her blush because I can't. We're just so thankful that both of you shared this time with us. For those of you who uh, are here perhaps for the first time and for those watching on our live stream broadcast, Elder Don Livesey is the president of the Lake Union Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church encompassing the five states around Lake Michigan. From Sunday night, as we explored the life of Moses, then to the life of Stephen, and last night to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have gleaned lessons, life lessons sharing Christ in our lives, no matter what our circumstances may be. And I can truly say that after last night's message, I have a very new insight every time I pick up a Tupperware dish. I was going to say I have a fresh insight, but I thought that would not be a good choice of words. As Pastor Don closes his message with us tonight entitled, Sharing Him in the Center of a Tight Spot, I invite Pastor Don to come up here as we pray with him. And I'm going to ask you, as we have done each night, that we also join in a prayer for ourselves and invite the Holy Spirit to embrace us in God's word as we sing that song, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Shall we pray? O God, our Father, we are so grateful that we have been able to share this special time that Pastor Don has ministered to us. And as he has opened the word of God and the insights that he has brought to us from the lives of of Moses, of Stephen, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And tonight, Father, as he opens up your word and presents to us this message, I pray that you will bless him and anoint him with your words, your thoughts, your insights. Father, as he leaves this place with Barbara and as they travel in all of their ministry and in all of the responsibilities that he carries for your remnant people, I ask your special blessing upon him. Keep him in your constant love and in your care until that day when we are all together, home, safely, in the arms of Jesus. And Father, we pray not only for Pastor Don, but we pray for ourselves as we listen to this message tonight that you will open up our hearts through the power and presence of your Spirit as we pray together. Spirit of the living God, full of friends.
fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. Good evening, friends. Thank you, Ella Louie, for those kind comments. Uh, but I think that Barbara and I have had the blessing of being here with all of you. And as I said last night, you have something special here. Don't let go of it. Move forward. Let the power of God continue to bring the message and the mission that God has called this church at this time in history and for this place. The Apostle Paul, at the point of our message tonight in Acts 16, has traveled about 1,250 miles on his first missionary journey. He's faced down a false prophet. He's been abandoned by John Mark. They were run out of Antioch. He had to run from Iconian to avoid stoning. In Lystra, they were worshiping when Paul is stoned and left for dead. He has returned to Jerusalem as a champion for the new Gentile believers, convincing the church to change its expectations for new believers regarding circumcision. And finally, just before the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, two close colleagues who have been through all of these things, have a sharp dispute and a disagreement, and they go separate ways. A few years ago, I uh, had the privilege of being a youth director, and uh, Elder Phil Rossberg and I actually have some roots back to a camp called Leone Meadows in Northern California. It's so far up in the mountains that the post office address is Grizzly Flats that give you a little sense of the high, winding mountain roads that you get there, and camp had finally come to an end and uh, the staff of about 105 staff members, a large camp, the largest summer we had was about 2,300 campers. Uh, <clears throat> it was time to leave camp, but there was a tradition at Leone Meadows called the fling. The fling was a special event to close off the staff's work, and typically it meant going somewhere, having some fun time doing something, and also uh, having a wonderful bind-off banquet spiritual remembrances of the camp, a challenge to continue ministry through the next school year, and to return back the next year for, for a wonderful season. 
And uh, as, as we planned the fling, uh, one of the traditions is that it was a secret uh, what it was going to be. So we kept, it a, we kept it a secret as much as we could, and I made a decision to try to get to the first location of the fling as safely as possible. You see, being a guy, I, I know what guys, uh, we've talked about guys through the little weekend, so, you know, going down a winding mountain road, road uh, guys might tend to want to do a little fast driving. And so I made a decision that to make it as safe as possible, we would caravan to the first location. So the staff worked very hard on Sunday, taking down camp, and finally the cabins were cleaned, the horse track was put away, the ski boats were washed, and, and uh, I, there was a van that I was going to drive with the ski boat so we could take it down and sell. And the, and the cars lined up with a school bus at the end for those who didn't have a car. So it was finally the right time to go. We all climbed in the cars and started down the mountain, winding down through those roads towards Somerset. And as we continued down, something unusual happened. I, I noticed a CHP, California Highway Patrol, four-wheel drive vehicle going the opposite direction. I, th- I said to the staff that was in the van, I says, man, we don't see those guys here enough. I'm glad to know that they're patrolling in our area continued to drive, and uh, five, ten minutes later, I don't remember exactly how long it was, I looked in the side view mirror of the van, and there was that same highway patrolman with his lights on. Now, I love law enforcement, and they do so many things, and they do so many sacrifices, but I would just rather not ever see them behind me with the lights on. He had turned around and had to weave his way through all of those cars, and so he was clearly after me. And so I, I, uh, there wasn't a lot of places to pull off, and I, I finally found a turnoff actually on the opposite side of the road and uh, pulled the van ski boat off and stopped, and he got out, and he was a cranky man. He was not a happy camper. And being a camp director, I know when I see an unhappy camper. (laughs) And he came up to me a bit red in the face and said, Don't you know that when you have five or more cars behind you, you're supposed to pull off? (laughs) And I said, Yes, sir, I do know that. But let me explain. We have a Christian camp. We just finished a a uh, hard-working, wonderful summer, and the staff were heading to an event, and we have 35 cars. I thought it would be safer to lead the 35 cars down the mountain instead of letting them just go on their own. He said, you can't lead 35 cars down the mountain. And he looked over at the road, and they were all stopped. He said, why are they stopped? I, was, I tried to explain it to him again. That we, he said, tell them to get going. And so I went to the lead car and let them know where to go, and off they went. But as they were going by, hanging out the windows, looking at their camp director getting a ticket, I said to him, I want you to know that I feel that what we were doing and why we were doing it was the right thing. And I I just want you to know that I'm going to go to court on this. He said, have it your way. He wrote the ticket. 
I climbed in the car. He didn't then give the ticket to the front car of that group, but then I followed down behind, and we had a wonderful fling. Have you ever noticed that when you're trying to do the right thing, sometimes it doesn't turn out real well? Paul is trying to do the right thing. And the scripture tells us that here they were, and they came to Philippi, and in verse 16, it says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by soothsaying, and she followed Paul and us, crying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, it's like she was giving a free advertisement. But there are people who actually speak the truth to be disruptive. And Satan was using this young girl in a terrible way, And it says that, and she did this for many days, but Paul was finally annoyed and turned and said to the spirit that was in her, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. All of us have had to deal with difficult people. Is that correct? In leadership, in the church, we had the privilege of dealing with absolutely the most wonderful people across the face of this church that you can imagine. The time here, the places I go, the churches, the other camp meetings, the connections, it is an incredible blessing to see the faithful, wonderful people of God day after day being just great in the message and the mission of the church. Do I hear a hallelujah for that? Folks, this is a wonderful church. And so in leadership, and I I tell our, our office staff, we get to deal with the best people, but there will be some others. And one of the things that we tend not to remember when we deal with difficult people is that everybody has a story. And those stories have often shaped these individuals into the difficulty that they have. And Jesus looked beyond the behavior to the heart. And he looked in that way so that he could heal that person of what was wrong in their hearts. And so often we just concentrate on the behavior. Paul sees a slave girl, human trafficking, who is being used because of the terrible problem of being possessed by a spirit. And he rescues her from this terrible malady. He does a wonderful thing. But then the scripture says, that the slave owners figured out that they had just lost their income 
And they were absolutely angry. They take Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the magistrates. They are stripped of their clothes and they are beaten. So how would you like that? You do something good and this is what happens. Paul and Silas are placed in prison, bleeding, wounded, in a terrible spot. Paul is an individual who does not only believe in the wonderful things of God, He does not only believe in the Sabbath and the second coming, in the salvation of Jesus. He does not only believe in all the wonderful truths of Scripture, but Paul is also a man of conviction. I submit, folks, that it's not enough just to intellectually believe in something God calls our belief to descend into the very depths of our heart and soul to bring conviction. Paul's conviction takes him toward Jesus and therefore doing things. I I love in Philippians 3 where Paul says, you know, I was a Jew of Jews, and he goes down through the lineage of being of the tribe and circumcised and a Pharisee of Pharisees and blameless according to the law. But he says, but all of that is refuse. All of that is nothing. And Paul describes two Pauls. He describes Saul, who was a driven religious person. And then he describes Paul, who is a drawn person to Jesus. I submit to you that if we're driven by religion, it's, we are in danger at times of, uh, of becoming terrorists. Because religion without the core of Jesus Christ is not enough. Paul accepts Jesus, and he is drawn to Jesus. And as you read there in Philippians 3, the beauty of his experience, it goes deep. It is a powerful thing. And Paul is the kind of man who says, Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to both abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul understands this. In the time I told you the other night about when we traveled to Europe with our our daughters, two separate trips, we went into what is uh, believed to be the Mamertine prison where Paul was read this text in there and just thought about the faithfulness of this man. But the faithfulness and the doing of a good thing sometimes means that conviction takes us into a very difficult place. So Paul is beaten and Silas is beaten 
terribly. They are taken to the prison. They are taken to the center of the prison. They are put in stocks. And there they are in the center of a tight spot. Think about your backside being flayed by a whip. And then being taken to a spot where other prisoners have been for days and days, your feet in stocks, your bleeding backside is sitting on a filthy floor that has not been sanitized since the other people were there. They may have broken bones. They are deeply wounded. They are there in the center of a tight spot. Now, when I'm in pain, it's difficult to think about anything else. Anybody here? You know, and some of the you know, men, we, we've talked a little bit about favorite things the other night. And, and so any of us who have done uh, some construction with a hammer, inadvertently, so, sooner or later, we, we smack our thumb, don't we? And that's always bad to hit your thumb. But that second and third time you hit your thumb, that's what really gets to you. I mean, that's, that's really, oh, it kind of makes you weak in the head. And Paul and Silas are here in this deep pain. And the prisoners are all around. So what do you do? Do you moan and groan? Do you, as some people, curse? Do you just say silent? Or do you figure out a way to praise the Lord. There are some who were there, and it says that they, they were singing. What song would you sing if you were in that? Some people might sing, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger, oh, traveling through this world of woe. There are others who might sing, Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Oh, gracefully sing his wonderful love. So others might sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Or they might have sung some other songs, of course, that were not written then. But they were singing And they were praying. And whatever they did and however they did it was driven by the Holy Spirit because those hardened prisoners were listening. I grew up in the Adventist church understanding that we as Adventists were different from most denominations. We worshipped on a different day. And, and we ate some funny food. And, and there were just these things. And so I remember my father saying, uh, we need to have a different look on, on when the Scripture says we are a peculiar people because we thought sometimes that people looked at us as being peculiar 
But I'd like to give you a little different twist on the peculiar thing because when someone is in a lot of trouble and they take the high road and they praise God and they do things that are wonderful and not what the rest of the world does, that is peculiar in the most wonderful way imaginable. When people see us in those kinds of scenarios witnessing for God in a powerful way, it makes a difference. And so the prisoners are listening. And how do we know they were listening? Because when the earthquake comes, the doors pop open, the shackles fall off, and the prisoners stay. Because you see, Paul and Silas had taken a maximum security prison cell and turned it into a witnessing venue. Now, Barbara and I grew up in Southern California. We know about earthquakes. They come and you just kind of, oh, is this going to be the big one? Okay, it's, it's gone. I've seen a hanging lamp in our house uh, as a child swinging that far back and forth. But I've never been in an earthquake where the doors popped open. I've never been in an earthquake where shackles fell off of people's arms. This was a miracle of God honoring two men who took the center of a tight spot and turned it into a witnessing venue. God has called for you and for me to be a witnessing venue in no matter what the circumstances are. And aren't you glad that we don't have those kinds of scenarios? Don't you, aren't you glad that we get a lot of scenarios that are way easier to witness? God has a divine appointment all the time for all of us. And I will confess to you, and maybe you'll confess back to me, haven't we missed too many? Haven't we not just prepared ourselves at the beginning of the day to say, Lord, I'm yours. I know there's someone there. Barbara is in the church partly because someone sent signs of the times to her folks when she was very young. And that was one of the many steps that God used to bring her into this wonderful church. And so the prisoners are affected, the jailkeeper and the family are affected. They pull Paul out of there, they take care of Paul and Silas, and they are brought to Jesus. God has called us to be a witness for him. Now, the last four nights, I will admit to you, I've told some stories that have a fair amount of drama to them. I've told you some stories about the fiery furnace and, and Moses being so disappointed and yet being so honored and we, we think about here we have Paul and Silas in the prison. And so I want to try to take you into a little different venue of thinking about last day events. 1983, 
I went through seven months of chemotherapy. Things happen in your head when your life is at stake. Different thoughts come and go at the end of the chemotherapy. The doctor said, with the kind of cancer that you have, if you make it two years without a reoccurrence, you have a 95% chance of cure. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I'll just tell you, uh, there may be some who don't like the uh, idea of 95%. They want 100%, but nobody has 100%. I mean, even if you've never had cancer, you don't have 100%. 95%, I like that a lot. And so the beginning of the two years started, and I remember traumatizing myself with worry. And I would actually produce pain in the spot where the tumor had been and go to the doctor for a checkup, and there was nothing there. Blood work was fine. X-ray, nothing was there. And so those things happen, and some of you here know what I'm talking about. You have been there. There are a lot of survivors here in this building. I'm, I'm just sure of it. And, and, so t- and then there came a day when I realized that I hadn't thought about cancer for a couple days. I I liked that. That was nice to not worry about it and and think about it. And and time progressed, and as I got about halfway through the two-year period, something very interesting occurred to me, that the two years that I was in was my probation on this cancer thing. Now, some of you may have grown up with a little bit of a fear factor on the close of probation. Anybody here ever feel that? I remember in Academy, we, we did this play, The Year Time Ended. And we focused on be, people being arrested, and we focused on people being thrown in prison. And, and folks, we know that the last days will be difficult. Here in the United States, we are so separated from all the difficulties of the world that if we were experiencing right now what is happening in much of the world, we would know the Lord was coming tomorrow because all of our trauma, and yet much of the world is actually going through those very traumas that we wouldn't be able to deal with right here. And so we have this fear factor, and I grew up, quite frankly, I'll confess to you, I grew up with a bit of a fear factor on the clothes a probation. But then it occurred to me, and it's changed for me, that my probation was about to end in a year. And when my probation ended, I would have a freedom that I was longing for. I would have that point of cure. And all of a sudden, I began to look at the close of probation differently because for those of us who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into our hearts, the close of probation will mean freedom. I'm going to say that again. The close of probation will mean freedom from sin and all there is. God is looking forward to that time where he says, you are now fully mine, and the devil will have no more access to you.
And so as we as a church recognize this opportunity, let us not dwell on the fear, let us dwell on the hope. Folks, the theme song of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not We have this fear that rests within us. No! We, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, have a theme song. We have this hope in the coming of the Lord. And I believe that frees up our dialogue with the people around us because the joy comes to us. A few years ago, Barbara and I visited the William Miller Farm in New York just over the state line there, and we went out to Ascension Rock. And I just had to reflect on the people who went through the great disappointment, the fervor, the passion, the hope, the joy in the coming of the Lord and the despair when he did not come. Do we want the Lord to come that badly? Oh, my friends, it is so, so important. And now I want to go to the judgment part. Because so often we have looked at the judgment as a very fearful thing where God will pronounce somebody guilty. But I also want us to look at the other side of the judgment because God is looking forward to the judgment when he can stand and proclaim not only that we are not guilty, but that we are innocent. This is the part of judgment we need to recognize and behold. And so I did go to court for that traffic ticket. And when I got there, I sat there and watched some of the cases unfold. And I had prepared my speech. Oh, I had prepared it. Maybe with a little evangelistic effort. And the bailiffs and the judge, who's next? Donald Livesay. Sometimes I say Livesay. Livesay. And that would be me, sir. The officer, please appear, who wrote the ticket. Nothing. Someone went outside to look for him. He wasn't there. And the judge said, as Jesus wants to say for you, boom, not guilty. This is what God wants for you and plans for you and for me. Now, I have a challenge for each of us, and I want to offer that challenge with a couple of stories. They don't really go together, but I'm going to make them go together. Phil Rosberg's uh, youth director, when he was a staff member at Leonie Meadows, was traveling from the Bay Area in San Francisco down to Los Angeles. One of those smaller commuter flights that, uh, you know, just isn't really huge. And so he got onto the plane. He was sitting there. And the captain came on to the PA system. Oftentimes, captains don't do so, but this one liked to be on the PA system. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Flight 503, bound for Los Angeles International Airport. Thank you for flying with us today. Oh, okay, so that's good. 
So they're all settled in, waiting. Captain comes on again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is before all the security stuff, okay? So just letting you know that you can tick a counter to the gate, not a big deal. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just received word from the ticket counter that three passengers are a little late. They have checked in. They are currently sprinting to the gate. We will wait for them. We thank you for your patience. So, okay, I'm going to wait a while. The captain comes on again. Ladies and gentlemen, we and the crew have noticed through the years of flying that when we make an announcement, nobody listens. So we're going to have a little fun. When these three people arrive, we'll allow them to settle into their seats, and I will announce an incorrect flight number and destination. If any one of those three responds with a question about that, I'll buy drinks for the entire plane, but I don't think they will. Now the passengers are really engaged. All of a sudden, they're making friends with the person next to them and talking about, oh, I can't wait to see this. And within just a very few minutes, the, uh, the first of the three appears in the front of the plane, and uh, the whole plane bursts out in laughter. <laughs> First one, businessman, tie over, shoulder been running, shirt coming untucked. Next one, a businesswoman, and her hair isn't quite right now, you know, and the, the blouse isn't quite all tucked in right, and she, they're out of breath. And the third one, and they, take, they come down the aisle, people looking at them, you know, and watching them go by and smiling, and they find their seats, and they sit down, and they buckle up, and, and everybody was watching. The captain comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to flight 904 bound for Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for flying with us. We'll be leaving the gate shortly. Everybody watched those three people and they didn't say a word. the captain come, came back on the PA system and simply said, I told you so. <laughs> Second story. <laughs> I had the privilege of being in Seventh-day Adventist education from first grade all the way through graduate school seminary. What a blessing. What a blessing. Barbara came to college, not as an Adventist, and her sophomore year was baptized. And I, I, folks, uh, our, our daughter, our youngest daughter, has recruited for a higher education. And we have a lot of our kids who have not been able to be in our schools for one reason or the other. And I love the dedication for so many who have helped our kids to be in our schools, but we know there are a lot who simply haven't had that opportunity. And our, our daughter always said, higher ed may be their last chance to really come to grips with the mission of this church and be trained. Our Adventist schools were started to train young people to be servants of God and, and missionaries, both here and... And you remember some of the names of our colleges, don't you? Southern Missionary College. 
Andrews University used to be Emmanuel Missionary College. Loma Linda was the College of Medical Evangelists. And so there is a wonderful opportunity, and some people are higher ed isn't perfect. But folks, it is wonderful. So Barbara came into the church at that time, and I remember some of the great teachers that I had. And one of the very best was the fourth grade teacher there at San Diego Academy, Mabel Robinson Miller. Some of you have read the book she wrote, William and His 22. It's about William Farnsworth, one of the very first Seventh-day Adventists. He had been an Adventist, but he stood in the Washington, New Hampshire church, and Barbara and I were just recently there, and he stood up with his family and said, we have decided to worship on Sabbath. And there the Seventh-day Adventist church began to take a form that it had not had just as Adventists. And Mrs. Miller wrote this book about William Farnsworth and his 22 children, (laughs) not his 22 rifle, but his 22 children. And so she was just a marvelous teacher. And many of you here are, uh, are close enough to my age that you remember Friday mornings in school. It was JMV, Junior Missionary Volunteers. And we would have sometimes speakers come in and, and stories and different special things. But always we had a song service with that special youth sings songbook. And we would, uh, and Mrs. Miller played the piano. And she had one of those uprights with a long mirror across the top so that she could watch students like me. And she would, we would play a song and then she would turn around and and ask who would like to sing what song every Friday, I think every Friday, somebody in the in the room would raise their hand with some excitement. Mrs. Miller, Mrs. Miller, I want to sing number four. And Mrs. Miller would get a gleam in her eye because she could play number four. Not everybody could play number four, but Mrs. Miller could, and she would turn around on that piano bench. You know the kind that if you turned them one way, they would get taller, and if you turned them the other way, they would get shorter. And she would turn around on that piano bench and spread her fingers on that keyboard. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. And then we would just belt out the words. There's another task to do. There's a battle to renew. And the captain calls for you. Volunteers, volunteers, rally to the throbbing drum. Shout the word. We come, we come. Volunteers, volunteers, volunteers. Christ before us. Christ behind. Christ on every side. For the rescue of mankind. On to glory ride. Volunteers, the question I want to ask you the captain is calling. Are you listening? Oh Lord, you are our captain, you are our savior, you want to lead us into the kingdom of heaven, and you are calling. I pray now for each of us 
May we accept that call every day so that soon and very soon we can be with you in glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for the Carolinas. Amen.